forever, forever, ever, forever, ever. Now dig this, Matt. Y'all know I love stationery. Y'all know I love to take notes. I love to write. I love to write on paper. I love to write in notebooks. Matt, what'd you give me for Christmas this year? I got you notebooks and pens and organizers. Correct. I love it. Uh, and I find that it genuinely helps me remember things better as opposed to typing them or like putting them on a, like a text file or whatever. Actually writing something down physically helps me a lot. It helps me organize my thoughts. It helps me get my work done. And ever since I got my new uh, iPad and I got the Apple Pencil with it, I have been doing that on there, and that's great. The only problem I've had with it, it doesn't quite feel like writing on paper, which is a feeling I like. We have the solution to that problem. That's right. Paper-like. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it's a screen protector for your iPad. It uses a proprietary technology called NanoDots. With those NanoDots, you feel the natural resistance of paper on your iPad screen. It is a paper-like feeling on your iPad. So if you're drawing, if you're taking notes, if you're using your iPad like you would a notebook, here's the way for it to really feel natural. And Chris, I know you love that. You you have an iPad, you got a paper-like, and I'm sure it's, it feels just right for you. It does. It feels great to use. Also, Matt, you know I'm very particular about paper. I have specific brands of notebooks that I will and will not use. And paper, like, feels good on the iPad. Uh, They also make accessories for the pencil to make the pencil a little more comfortable to hold. They make uh, accessories to help you clean the iPad as well. They've got it all. The ability to handwrite notes in a digital form is great to begin with. But getting that extra tactile feeling that makes me happy while I do it, (laughs) that gives me that little dopamine, that little serotonin burst that I like to have, is fantastic. The latest version of the Paperlike is manufactured in Switzerland using high-quality plastic foils designed for maximum picture clarity. You're not going to lose any of the definition of your iPad screen if you put a Paperlike on there. And these foils are developed exclusively for paper-like products. It also always comes in a set of two, so you have a spare. Look, we know a lot of artists listen to this show. If you're an artist and you're looking for a way to make drawing on your iPad feel a little bit better, this is how you do it. So, to pick up your paper-like, head over to paperlike.com ajax, click buy paper-like, and select your iPad size. From now, right now, until the end of January, Paperlike is also including their Digital Pro Planner Bundle at no extra cost for every order placed through the Paperlike store. Plus, shipping is completely free. So if you're ready to do more with your iPad, head over to paperlike.com ajax to get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a War Rocket Ajax Every Story Ever special edition for January of 2015. My name is Chris Sims. With me, as always, my co-host, Mr. Matt Wilson. Matt, how are you doing this fine evening? Hi, everybody. I'm doing great. And you made this happen. Because of your backing of our Patreon, we're going to be doing one of these Every Story Ever specials every month. 
That's right, Matt. Uh, if you are wondering why there is an extra episode of Warwick Ajax showing up in your feed this week, it is all because of our generous backers on Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash Ajax. One of our goals was to get enough support so that we would do an extra Every Story Ever special every month. And if you don't know what Every Story Ever is, then you are probably a new listener and would like to have this explained to you. Yes, so here's the explanation. We have a list on our website, warrocketajax.com, called Every Story Ever. Right now, it is right around 170 comics. We have been making that list throughout 2014, and now that it's 2015, we're continuing it in these specials. What we're doing is we're taking lists from our listeners of three comic book stories, and then we are placing those stories on the list from best to worst comic book stories of all time. Currently, our best ever comic book story is Amazing Spider-Man, If This Be My Destiny, a.k.a. The Final Chapter. And our worst comic book story ever, it was in our very first episode of Every Story Ever, and is still our worst ever comic book story. It is Identity Crisis. Now, if you are a new listener and you want to know just why it is that we get to make these decisions, uh, well, one, it's our podcast. <laughs> so we get to decide whatever we want as long as we're doing this. Uh, Matt and I are also writers. Uh, we are both comic book writers and comic book critics. Uh, I've written uh, a graphic novel and a couple of uh, independent comic series. And Matt just wrapped up the first arc of his independent comic series, Copernicus Jones. Uh, we also write for Comics Alliance. And, of course, we've been doing War Rocket Ajax together for almost five years. So we have reviewed a lot of comics in that time. So, look, we got credentials <laughs> to do this, even though... Some might say that this list was put together somewhat haphazardly. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, this list is undoubtedly scientific and made with the most care, the utmost care, the utmost scientific proof. Right, so now that we've got that out of the way, we've explained the list, we've explained ourselves, uh, the way we get the subjects for the list is that you, the listener mail lists of three comics to uh, warrocketpodcast at gmail.com. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can get line-cutting privileges to make us uh, handle your list. Uh, but uh, otherwise, we just pick them from the many that we got over the course of 2014. Uh, like the list that we're going to start with right now. Yes, this is a list we got in September of 2014, in fact. Oh, a fairly recent vintage. From Tim Bishop. He is a longtime listener and supporter. I'm excited to see what he has given us. JLA numbers one through six, New World Order by new, Grant new, Morrison. New World Order. New World Order. New, 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 new World Biggest Order. Biggest icon. Uh, by Grant Morrison and Howard Porter. Uh, this is one of the all-timers for me, Matt. I don't know how you feel about it, but man, I love this story. It's good. It's very good. Uh, it is... Looking at it from 2015, here are the flaws. We'll, we'll start with the bad parts. We'll start with the flaws. 
Uh, it reads very much like a late 90s comic. Yes. But I feel like that's because it, in a lot of ways, is the uh, the blueprint for the late 90s comic. I mean, this was, what, 97? So it would have been while Stormwatch was going on, the Ellis Stormwatch. Uh, but it, it is very much... It's the big weird event comic that skips a lot of skips a lot of steps. You know, you get it's a highlight reel in a lot of ways. It, that is exactly that, what it is. That jumpy style. Yeah. Um, also, Howard Porter was, I don't think, the right choice to relaunch JLA. I think he's fine. Uh, I think he does a very good job in a lot of places. I think he would later become a, a really good comics artist. Uh, his stuff on Flash, I think, is particularly enjoyable that he would do several years after this. Uh, but at the time, I'm not sure if he was quite the right guy to do a high-profile relaunch like uh, JLA was. Because JLA was a huge deal in 97. Yeah. Uh, the other low point, or looking back, not-so-great thing about that first JLA arc is uh, Superman's mullet. But there was no really no real getting around that. Yeah, that ain't their fault. That's yeah. not their fault. I, I, I can't, like... The one thing in retrospect for me about this comic is just going back and looking at it in in comparison to the opening Justice League arcs on the Justice League series that followed. <laughs> yeah, nothing nothing touches it. Yeah. I mean because yeah, I mean like I was saying, those are the bad parts. The good parts are everything else. Yeah, like, but even the complaint that it jumps around, that is so much better than, you know, Brad Meltzer Justice League sitting oh, around the, a table looking at pictures. With their goddamn trading cards? Yeah. Yeah. Or even, you know, I, I feel like it does the big action movie Justice League better than... Uh, Jeff Johns and Jim Lee, which, I mean, we notoriously are not fans of. Yeah. But that if, if you can say anything about that book, it's that they were trying to do the big action movie Justice League. Uh, that is not pulled off nearly as well as it is by Morrison and Porter. Yeah. Because you have to remember, like, this was the first time in 11 years, in 10 years, like, it's the first post-crisis Justice League where every, like, it's the big guys, the post-crisis Justice League is the Giffen Dematius League, and even in you know the early '90s, it's it's the second stringers. Yeah, uh, one of the first things that happens in JLA number one is that they literally destroy the satellite, like they destroy the the second stringers to make way for the the new bunch. Like you know, Metamorpho dies in that issue, uh, and then we get. The Justice League. We get Superman, Batman, Flash, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and Martian Manhunter. It was the first time the big guys were back in the Justice League since well before Crisis on Infinite Earths. Because the Justice League pre-Crisis, immediately pre-Crisis, is the Detroit League. So it had been since the early 80s that you had all the heavy hitters on the team and it's treated like that since you had the super friends essentially. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I, I I think super friends was part of the reason why you hadn't seen that team in years and years. And then Morrison and Porter were able to make that team not hokey 
without making them needlessly grim. Right. And I love like the idea that they they do in that story that on the surface for the first what three issues of a five issue story they are essentially fighting the authority before the authority. Right. <laughs> They're fighting the you know 90s extreme designed superhero team that deals out the the death penalty to all the supervillains and uh, they're going to take out the those stodgy old good guys that we know. Like, it's very much a 21st century story. Uh, it, that's what I mean when I say that it's like a blueprint. It is ahead of its time in that way. And it's really, really good. Like, when the twist comes, because here's the thing about that twist. Uh, now, you know, I am a big... I'm a big DC Universe fan, right? Like, I'm a guy who's read a lot of those comics. Uh, I, But at the time, when that book came out, and I started reading Justice League, and I went back and, and read that issue, because I got into Justice League through Mark Wade, so I didn't come in until maybe, like, the, you know, 18, 19, whenever the Julian September story is. Uh, going back and reading it, like, I was, what, 15, 16, so I didn't really have the the knowledge of the DC universe and the white Martians and stuff like that. But it doesn't matter in that story because that story tells you who the white Martians are and makes them sound amazing. (laughs) Yes. On our list, the top justice league related story is JLA year one. Where do you think this goes in relation to that? That's tough because JLA year one's a longer story with better art. (laughs) Yes. I mean, can you imagine how good New World Order would have been if Barry Kitson drew it? Oh, oh man, that would be that would be so good. And again, no, I, I mean that is disrespectful to Howard Porter, but no, no disrespect to Howard Porter. Like he he gets better, but he was pretty new at the time. Here's what JLA Year One doesn't have: is that scene where Batman takes out four White Martians by himself. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the the part where Batman. Does a diehard with a uh, immortal is amazing. Where he pins him to the, you know, he hangs him up from the wall with a, a note pinned to his chest that says, "I know your secret." That is the hardest shit in the game. Okay, so we're putting it above JLA Year One. Uh, <sighs> JLA Year One's really good. But I do. I really love New World Order. I, I feel like they're they're very comparable to each other in terms of quality. Yeah, because what we have right above JLA Year One is Infinity Gauntlet. And I don't see. I feel like that's really comparable to to New World Order too. Yeah, I don't know that it beats out Infinity Gauntlet. I would probably put it above Infinity Gauntlet, but just because I love, I am way more of a Justice League guy than I ever have been an Avengers guy. You know. Yeah, I, like I would I, probably put it like directly above Cosmic Odyssey, which is above Infinity Gauntlet. I would put it between Infinity Gauntlet and JLA Year One. Okay, then I think that's a, that's a decent enough place. For I it. think Infinity Gauntlet is the more important story, and and ultimately the better story. Um, but only just, only just. Okay. I, I do feel like you could make a case for Superman being kind of chained up and helpless because of kryptonite and talking about how Batman's the most dangerous human being alive did send the wrong message that DC would then roll with for the next 20 years. Yes. Uh, that is a hundred percent accurate. Uh, okay. 
the I, I think our placement is pretty good though. The next story we have on Tim's list is Manhunter by Goodwin and Simonson. Ooh, the Bronze Age Manhunter. That's right. See, these these are good comics <laughs> we are getting on this list. Uh Manhunter's great. Manhunter's amazing. Uh it's obviously not the best Simonson comic because Thor is arguably the best superhero run of all time. Right. But like it's in a long career, it is probably the best Archie Goodwin comic, and it is really close to being the best Simonson comic. Now now this is a run I have not read. I've I need to go back this is a blind spot for me. I'm gonna have to go back and read the Bronze Age Manhunter. But Chris, I'm leaving this entirely up to you. Uh, okay, well, what it was was it was Goodwin and Simonson doing a series of backups in uh, Detective Comics about Paul Kirk, who was the uh, Manhunter character that I believe Kirby had done some work on, either either created or worked on in uh, uh, during the '40s, around the same time he was doing Sandman. Um. They, it's a complete reboot, revamp. He gets a new costume. Uh, and basically what it is, is he's kind of James Bond in the DC Universe. He's a world-traveling adventurer. He just wears you know a mask and a weird costume. And that costume design is so good. It's ridiculously impractical. It's got these billowing sleeves and uh, a weird, like, kind of samurai-ish jacket and weird metal gates around his ankles so that he can put his uh his knives on but it's beautiful like it is one of those costumes that nobody but Simonson would ever want to draw you know <laughs> right uh and it's just like it's a world traveling adventure story it's a batman team up uh and they would later do a a collection of it that uh, had a new story that kind of finished out the whole thing. And there are two versions of it. One of them is a just a regular stapled comic. The other one is a gold foil prestige format book. And both of those, for the longest time, were like dollar books or like $5 books at the most. Uh, you can find them easily at any convention. And I'm sure they've gone up lately because I think with the advent of the internet, people are kind of, you know... People are way more aware of what good buried treasures there are in in dollar bins and quarter bins. But if you get a chance to to get that book, get the gold foil edition because it's amazing and it is a very rewarding comic. It's so good. It's it's everything you want out of Simonson, everything you want out of Goodwin, everything you want out of Adventure Strips. Uh, as far as lasting impact, uh, Paul Kirk was one of those characters who just never stuck around, you know? He was a backup in Batman, but he wasn't Batman, so, so he didn't stick around. He's like Nemesis in that way. Uh, while Nemesis kind of came back in Suicide Squad, uh, Manhunter never did until he showed up in The Power Company, which is the, the Kurt Busiek, Tom Grummet book that I think I read, and, uh, you know, Chad read it, but nobody else did. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, and that was actually a clone of uh, Paul Kirk, because that was a uh, plot of it was that it was a big clone story uh, that this this evil group wanted to clone Paul Kirk and make an army of manhunters. Uh, so the manhunter in that book was actually Kirk DePaul, 
which is a cool name for a clone of a guy named Paul Kirk, I think. Uh, a little bit was tied in later with the Manhunter series uh, by uh, Mark and Draco and Jesus Says, but like n- that original Simonson uh, Goodwin stuff is. It's the height of Bronze Age DC Comics for me. Like, it never gets talked about. I, I think because, you know, when people focus on the Bronze Age of DC Comics, they, they talk about, you know, Denny O'Neill on Batman or Denny O'Neill on Superman. You know, Carrie Bates coming on Superman. Uh, the sort of uh, Robert Kaniger attempt at relaunching Wonder Woman. Nobody talks about, like, the weird backup stuff. And it is, it holds up in a really, really cool way. Um, definitely one of the, one of my faves, I would say. Okay. So what neighborhood do we put it in? Uh, I mean, I don't think it gets super, super high, like kind of by default, it has to go under thunder frog. Right. Okay. Uh, if only because it's you know, nothing like, and that's another reason why it never gets talked about. Cause any conversation you have about Simonson comes back to Thor. Uh, but I would say it goes, I would say it goes probably around Doom Quest. I feel like it's really comparable both in era and in quality to to that story. Uh, um, above or below? Mm, I don't know. Doom Quest is really good. Going out the door test? Going out the door test, I would probably read Manhunter again over uh, Doom Quest. Okay, then we'll put it between Punisher meets Archie and Doom Quest. Uh, the last story on Tim's list is Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose, number 53. Oof. That is the Haunted Vagina story. That was a bad comic. I should have <laughs> known. I should have known we were in for a bad one. Sure. It's a bad comic, but it's like... I I wouldn't put it... I don't think I'd put it in our bottom 20. Because... Because so many of our our bottom bottom comics are comics that had such terrible effects, you know. Yeah, the thing the thing that I always say about tarot, like whenever I would say that like Identity Crisis was the worst story I'd ever read, people would be like, "Oh, but you read tarot," and I'd be like, "Yeah, but tarot doesn't ruin anything outside of itself, right?" And like, and it's like it even verges into you know enjoyably bad, like. Like, say what, I mean, yes, you have a haunted vagina is awful storytelling and dumb as hell. It's also hilarious. That's the thing. There is a lot of value to be had in reading tarot. However, uh, Samantha Brown, you have to get out of here. Your vagina is haunted. That's not the worst part of that issue. It is, by any standard you want to apply, a very poorly done issue. Uh particularly in story structure in that the good guy is trying to stop these ghosts from killing these women, but he can only do so as long as the ghosts literally tell them the street address that they are going to at the end of the story. Right. Uh, they, they kill the lady with the haunted vagina and uh skeleton man is like, well, Hey, you know, I'm going to stop you next time. And they're like, no, you're not. Cause we're not telling you where we're going next. And he goes, Oh, and that's the end of the comic. And so they go and presumably these ghosts go and kill people. And then the next issue, John has a wacky adventure. Uh, It is like, it's not, but at the same time, it's not the worst issue of tarot. (laughs) 
like it is not right. the most poorly thought out issue of tarot. I mean, look, do we think it's worse than... I mean, I don't think it's worse than Flashpoint. Yeah, that's exactly what I was looking at. It is not worse than Flashpoint. Right above Flashpoint is Batman the Cult. I don't think it's worse than the Cult. Okay, Executioner Saw. I don't think, I don't think this issue of Terror Wish the Black Rose is worse than four issues of Batman drawn by Bernie Wrightson. <laughs> We've got I don't ex- think it's worse than Grounded. I don't think it's worse than... Yeah, Ultimates... Than, well, it... Ultimates 2 is, I think, where we start getting into it's got to be worse than that territory. Okay, I do think it's not, as a single issue, I do think it is not as good as Heroes Reborn. Yeah. It's definitely not as good as Heroes Reborn. I would put it below Ultimates 2. Which would put it above Superman Batman Generations 3. (laughs) Do we think it's better or worse than Batman or Superman and Batman Generations 3? Oh, yeah. I think it's better than Generations 3. Okay, then that's where it goes. Because again... Between Ultimates 2 and Superman Batman Generations 3. Superman Batman Generations 3 does its damnedest to make Superman creepy. Yeah, like Superman Batman Generations 3 kind of ruins Superman Batman and John Byrne. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then... Tarot doesn't ruin anything except for Tarot. All right, Tarot 53. Surprisingly, like... Not even in the bottom 30-some issues of our I, list. I mean, it is it is not a good comic. No, but we've got but it, worse comics on here uh, under that. And it has that, like, you have, to, you have to give consideration to a book that is legitimately enjoyable to read for how bad it is. And who is it hurting, really? Yeah. All right, Tim, thank you for that list. The next list we have comes from Tanner Bonner. And this is some of Tanner's personal favorite comics. Okay, this should be this should be fun because we will either confirm this and have three new good comics, or we will make a listener hate us. Yes. So, Very exciting. Uh the first one that Tanner has listed here is The Incredible Hercules, which uh they specify is the first run. I th- believe we have an Incredible Hercules story on the list already. Yes, we have the Thorkules story where Hercules yeah. uh, gets the power of Thor, briefly. So, I'm just going to say that this this is going to be the first arc of the Incredible Hercules, which spun out of uh, Planet Hulk. That's good-ass comics, Matt. It's very good. Um, good-ass comics. I, I The dynamic between... Hercules and Amadeus Cho is one of my favorite like superhero slash teen sidekick dynamics in comics in a long time. Well, it's a very it's a very easy kind of inversion of the of the regular relationship, you know, like where Amadeus is not necessarily the mentor, but he's the he's the smarter one. He's very clearly the one who's in charge. Yeah, and and Hercules is just kind of the muscle that he he says, "I'm smart, go do this." And uh it'll fix the problem. There are so many things in comics 
like I have read a lot of obscure back issues, and I mean, we we just talked about Manhunter and Nemesis a second ago, but like, there are so many great ideas in comics that never go anywhere because nobody picks them up once they're brought in. Uh, I even thought about doing like a top five list for Comics Alliance where I was just going to talk about my favorite, you know, abandoned concepts. Uh, and Amadeus Cho was one of those. Amadeus Cho first appears in. Uh, Amazing Fantasy Volume 2, number 15, where the idea was that they would introduce, uh, I think it was four new characters. Uh, and they were each tied to existing Marvel properties, though. So you had like the new Scorpion. Uh, Amadeus Cho was actually the new Mastermind Excello, which was a kind of forgotten Golden Age property. There was like a new man with the X-ray eyes in there. And nobody really did anything with Amadeus Cho for a long time. And I like I always thought, like, oh, man, here's this young, cool character with a cool design. His powers, you know, they figured out a way to make his super genius really visually engaging. Uh, he's, you know, a, a Korean-American character, which Marvel has very little of. Uh, and nobody's ever going to do anything with it. And then uh, Incredible Hercules came out, and Greg Pak was able to pull Amadeus Cho back in for that. And it was it, it lived up to every bit of potential that I thought it had. Yeah, Greg Pak and Fred Benlinty. Um Yeah, and then co-writing with Fred Benlinty, who uh, – that was the first time they had ever co-written together. That, that it was instantly that good coming yeah. out of what uh, Pak had done on Hulk. It's amazing. It, it clicks really well and really fast. Now – I don't think that the first arc, uh, which is called Against the World, is the best Incredible Hercules arc. What do you think is the best? I think the best is actually, well, I think it's the concurrent arcs of the replacement Thor slash Thorcules and the secret origin of Amadeus Cho. Uh, I especially like really I especially like that Amadeus Cho story. Um, that runs like it would be one issue about Hercules and then one issue about Amadeus and then another issue about Hercules and then another issue about Amadeus for about six issues. Um, <laughs> but when, when Amadeus Cho goes to challenge the person who set up the intelligence competition that he won in Excello, Utah, that's a yeah, great that's story. a really good story. Uh, so I don't think that the first arc is the best. I think there's a lot of setup in that first arc. But it does click really well, really fast. Well, now the first arc, if if memory serves, the first arc has them on the run from Shield, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a really it's really fun though. It's like really fun. You, you know, I am a I'm a real big fan of buddy superheroics. Like I love Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. I love Power Man and Iron Fist. And that's a really good, like, kind of buddy road comedy with this super smart kid and this kind of thick-headed god. You know, yeah. Greek god. And, and at, one, and point, at one point in the story, Amadeus Cho is just going to straight up destroy S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, he, he wants to take down S.H.I.E.L.D. because he's still loyal to the Hulk. Like, and, he, he yeah. he's the guy who was on the Hulk side in World War Hulk unrepentantly. Yeah, and so he has to be talked out of it. And then things pivot to... Hercules and Amadeus joining with Athena uh, yeah. to deal with the Skrull invasion. Um, I would say maybe not the maybe not the best, but it's still like it's there's good. really really good stuff in it's there. It's very good. Um, I don't think it's better than Thorcules. I don't think it's better than Planet Hulk. 
I don't know. Like, I think I might like it more than I like Planet Hulk. I mean, I like Planet Hulk a lot. We, we put Planet Hulk really high on this list. Yeah, I, but Thorkules is ten spots down from Planet Hulk. Uh, so, I don't know. I think... Well, that's, that's weird because this list is scientifically uh, put together and we never <laughs> change our minds on anything. That's right. Uh, so, I don't know. I think it could easily go in the neighborhood of Judas Contract, Deadpool, Reign of the Superman. I I definitely like it better than Judas Contract. Okay. Then do you like it better than No Man's Land? I think No Man's Land is a better a, a bigger accomplishment. I agree with that. So Cuz no, no Man's Land that it No Man's Land has bad parts. Uh, it's certainly got more parts, bad parts than Incredible Hercules, but that it holds together as much as it did with as much as it did. It's, you know, I mean, you really can't take that away from it. All right, let's put it between No Man's Land and The Judas Contract. The next... What's the, uh, what's the name of that story arc? It is called uh, Against the World. Okay. The next story on Tanner's list is Batman and Robin Volume 1. That was, That is the first uh, volume of the... Dick Grayson, uh, Damian Wayne, Batman and Robin, which is... Oh, I know what it is, Matt. So good. I know what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm talking... Comic. I'm talking to our listeners, Chris. I know, I know, I, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, Frank Quitely draws that comic. <laughs> it's so, so good. Uh, is that the introduction... Of Professor Pig, or was he introduced before that? No, that is the introduction of Professor Pig. Okay. Pig of, ends like, up being the... He ends up being Dick Grayson's Batman villain, which is really interesting. Yeah, and, like, a villain that has had, like, some weird, interesting staying power. A villain that showed up in a cartoon after that. <laughs> As the, as one of the most prominent villains on the cartoon, the yeah. cartoon that the only Batman cartoon to not last. Yeah. Maybe there's a weird correlation there. I don't know, but I really love, especially those early issues of Batman and Robin. It stays pretty consistently good, but yeah, no, it's it's real, real good. I I loved that dynamic between Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne. Yeah, they're like we, we talked about Hercules and uh, Amadeus kind of inverting the traditional dynamic, but like that uh, Damian is grumpy ass modern Bruce Wayne in a little tiny kid body, and and Dick Grayson as Batman is still Dick Grayson, whose whose superpower is that he makes friends. Uh, like that's a really good dynamic. Also that. That story has my favorite Batmobile, which is the flying Batmobile, the only yes. Batmobile that makes sense once you've been to New York. Yes. Because uh, traffic is a thing. That's that's a good comic, Matt. Yeah, I they agree. Do the, they do the punch-out, they do the, like, the two... The, Frank Quay draws the hell out of those little simultaneous punch-outs they do in that book. God, that is a... That is a good comic. Is it... I I would be willing to definitely say it's better than Batman R.I.P. Oh, now. Oh, now. Hold up. 
<laughs> Matt, you know how I feel about Batman R.I.P. Yeah, but Batman R.I.P.'s art. Okay, let me ask you this. Is it a better Dick Grayson Batman story than Black Mirror? That's really tough. Matt, they're like my children. <laughs> you have to understand this. Okay, hang on one second. I'm going to walk over to my Batman shelf, and I'm going to get Batman and Robin Volume 1. Hang on. Okay. I have to take off my Batman Snuggie. That's not a joke. I'm cold in here. Turn Hang on the, one second. Turn up the heat, son. All right, I got my copy of the Batman and Robin Batman Reborn Deluxe Edition hardcover. Okay. I'm leafing through it now. Oh, this comic looks good. Boy, Professor Pig is great. Yeah. Imagine a girl. At a dance. <laughs> okay, okay, here you go. You want to talk about art? Also, in this first volume of Batman and Robin, has that, uh, that uh, Philip Tan story with the Red Hood. Okay. Yeah, that story is almost unreadable. It's bad. That drags that, that, drags that volume down considerably. Yes, it does. Uh, but I believe the uh, – does it have the third arc in here? No, it doesn't. It's just those two stories. Ooh. Oh, man. That's... Okay, so having the Philip Tan story in there definitely brings it down. I did not realize that that was in the first volume as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, then, and that story that story could not look worse. Uh, then that definitely puts it below Batman R.I.P. I think it brings it below Black Mirror – uh, some things that are also in that neighborhood are Alan Moore's Wildcats, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Volume 1, Great Darkness Saga, Return of Barry Allen, Denny O'Neill Question. Is it better than Robin Dies at Dawn? It wouldn't exist if Robin Dies at Dawn didn't exist. That's That's for sure. Yeah. Um... But yeah, I mean, again, it's, you know, as much as I love Robin Dies at Dawn, it is a story from 1955, and there is yeah. kind of no getting around that. Yeah. Uh, what what neighborhood are we in here? Are we de- Alan Moore's Wildcats around that neighborhood? Okay. I'm a little uh, further down than that now. Robin Dies at Dawn is right below Copra Round 1, which is right below Bone. Uh, I would say... It's not as good as Cobra. I'll, I'll go ahead and put that on there. Like, it is not as good as Cobra Round One. Okay, but only because of that Philip Tan art. Yeah, that second story arc really, really pulls it down. Um, yeah, it's 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 the worst part of Morrison's long, long run on Batman. Okay, do you think it goes between Cobra and Robin Dies at Dawn? I think that's a good place for it. Okay, that is where Batman. Look, there ain't no shame in being there. None at all. Uh, So Philip Tan, you did okay. Uh, The last story on Tanner's list is V for Vendetta. Oh, that's a that's a good one. That's a good comic. Yeah, it's it's all right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, V for Vendetta is good. V for Vendetta is really good. It's. There was a there was a time when I liked it more than Watchmen. I don't think I'm I don't think I fall in that boat. Uh I said there was a time. Yeah. 
Um, Th- that time was uh, I was twenty three. <laughs> yeah, that's about the time. Um, I-, I think we can't. I don't think we can talk about V for Vendetta without talking about how influential it has been in in culture in the past, you know, decade or so, and how detrimental, like how bad its influence has been. And not necessarily, like, the story itself doesn't really even do it. It's just, like, that Guy Fox mask has become this image, this, this symbol for st- st- shit that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's always weird to me when I see uh, uh, the Guy Fox mask. Because it's specifically the Guy Fox mask from the movie version, right? So it's not even like it's not even like, hey, you you know who publishes V for Vendetta is uh, Time Warner. It's hey, this is from a big budget Warner Brothers movie. Yeah, from like one of the five you know conglomerates that control all media. Uh, but you know that ain't V for Vendetta's fault. That ain't Alan Moore and David Lloyd's fault. No, that movie being terrible is not their fault either. How was that movie so bad? It is so so bad. The end of I that like movie, the, like, the end of that movie, made me want to throw up. I feel like there are good parts in that movie. I feel like Natalie Portman's really good in the movie. I feel like Hugo Weaving's pretty good in the movie. I mean, it's got uh, Stephen Fry in it. Yeah, but it's bad. Like, like the end of and that you'd movie, you think it would be the easiest thing in the world to translate. Like the easiest thing in the world to translate. Okay, here's this reaction to Thatcher's Britain that's going to become the reaction to Bush's America. Yeah, like it. It feels like it would be easy, but it's like, like that's not a not a good movie. That the end of that movie features like a huge crowd of people putting on Guy Fox masks in a tribute to V. The terrorist hero. Fucking stupid. Ah, but enough about the movie. Let's talk about the comic. It reminds me of the end. There's one Godzilla movie that ends with the the scientist guy going. uh, There's like a a lady, and she's like, "Why did he save us?" And the scientist guy goes, "Maybe there's a little bit of Godzilla in all of us." (laughs) But like, that's way better in a Godzilla movie. The the comic does not have those those downfalls. Um, No, no, the comic is very good. Yeah. Um, like, like, it's now, now. Do you like the color version? Not as much, really. Yeah. Because see, I like. I didn't. I mean, obviously, I didn't know it was in black and white until I was until after I had read it. Well, after I'd read it the first time. Uh, and I actually like the coloring in V for Vendetta a lot I, because I, it's I, very it, it's very muted. You know, I don't think it's bad. I don't think yeah. the color is bad. Uh, but I, I have a, like I have an affinity for black and white comics. Uh, you do. You're a big manga guy. Well, big not, Dragon Ball guy. Yeah, that's that's me. No, I just you know if a comic was originally published in black and white, that's kind of how I would prefer to read it. But no, I don't think the color ruins it. I, I just I you know I have a preference for for the black and white, but. I like the muted end. Speaking of things being muted, I like the muted ending of the comic. Yeah, where it's just like, well, 
there's still chaos. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, V didn't really fix anything. It's just like he he blows up the post office tower and dies, and then things are still nuts. And I appreciate that. It it's sort of like he's the quote unquote terrorist hero, I guess, but he's not really a hero. And I appreciate the, the he's not really a hero, but like the but he is though because the. The people in power in that book are so cartoonishly evil. Sure, it's like it's, that's that's the thing about Alan Moore's work. Like it's it's very good, but Alan Moore is about as subtle as Jack Kirby. You know, well, it's it's eighties dystopia, right? Like, yeah, every eighties version of dystopia looks exactly like this. <laughs> uh, it it all comes from the you know. The 19, 1984 mixed with Nazis handbook. <laughs> you know, like. it, it really is. It really is. <laughs> but at the same time, like the the Man from Room Five issue of V for Vendetta is really good. Uh, the the um the one where Evie reads the note. That one's really really good. Yeah. Like it's it's good. And I I I I do think it's still relevant. In a lot of ways, I think the the term terrorism has taken on such a different meaning in the intervening years that it's kind of hard to read. Yeah, but I feel like at the time, at the at the time, like that was what terrorism was, you know? Right. Like especially it, in, in that society. Well, the the freedom fighter and terrorists were interchangeable terms depending on who was talking about them. Yeah, I mean, I'm specifically thinking, like, I've heard people talk about how... Because, you know, the thing is, like, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of explosions in V for Vendetta, but there's not a lot of death. Yeah. Uh, there's always, like, oh, I'm going to bring this down and it's going to be symbolic. And I've heard people talk about, like, that was, you know, the... A, a lot of the... And I, and I might have this wrong, and I apologize if I do, but, like, a lot of the the like Northern Ireland stuff. I, and I know people were hurt and killed during that, but a lot of the big statement terrorist attacks and bombings I have been told were the, of the kind of symbolic value over, you know, doing that rather than killing as many people as they could. I mean, I think the counter argument to that is that, you know, V blowing stuff up and not hurting anybody much is kind of a bullshit cop out too. Like <laughs> it's very comic booky. Because uh, I feel like how, I want to lower V for Vendetta just because we've been talking about it this long, and I'm getting increasingly uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, but like, you know, blowing up big public buildings, obviously somebody's going to get hurt or killed uh, <laughs> in those situations. Um, so trying to soften V into like, oh, I'm not going to kill anybody. I just want to do something symbolic is kind of a cop-out. I think it's one of the story flaws. Like, we just talked about Annihilator on the uh, the War Rocket Ajax uh, award show podcast. The, the Gordies. Yeah, and I talked about how as much as I like Annihilator, it is the Grant Morrison story again. Uh, and V is very much like that for Alan Moore. It's the Alan Moore story in its kind of purest form, I think. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. As you may have heard, like, Alan Moore was a pretty good comics writer. He was pretty good. 
so, okay. Now that we've talked about it as much as we have, Watchmen is currently number three on our list. I don't think it cracks that. No, I don't. I, I do not think the holds up quite as well as Watchmen. Although I will say this, I saw V for Vendetta. I did not see Watchmen. Well, that's that's more about films than than what they're adapted from. I think the next Alan Moore story on our list is top ten, number one through twelve. Not as good as top ten. Not as good as top ten. Not as good as top ten. Not as good as Wildcats either. Okay, honest. so that would. Okay, so it's not as good as Tom Strong. It's not as good as Wildcats. League. I, yeah, I think it's. I think it's probably better than League. Okay, so I think then, it's better constructed than League. Then that which would put I think it, League is very well constructed. That would put it directly between Wildcats and League. So we would have three uh, Alan Moores in a row in descending order. Yep. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, look, they're good. Okay, that's where it goes. I, I think that's an okay place for it. It's it's weird that they all get clumped up like this, but that is a problem of the format. Yes. So Tanner. Thank you for that list. Our third and final list of this special is coming from John Lundquist. And no real uh, context for these three stories. They're just being sent to us as they are. The first one is Empire by Mark Wade and Barry Kitson. That's a good one. I love that book. I am not surprised. Uh, that is a comic about... An analog of Doctor Doom winning and him actually having to rule the world and all the the bullshit that comes along with him having to try to rule the world and uh his his family and his his like right hand people constantly trying to backstab him and take over from him <laughs> yeah. or at least get like get the upper hand. So it's a lot of just, like, villains backstabbing each other to get power uh, in a comic. And I am all in for that. One of the best opening sequences of all time. Yes. Uh, there's, it's, if you've never read it, and by the way, if you've never read it and you have $4, you can go to Thrillbend and, like, sign up for a Thrillbend account. And they will just give you, like, you just download a PDF of Empire for $4. Plus you get, like, all the other stuff at Thrillbend. Yes, um, and uh, there, uh, there's a continuation of Empire that is either started or is about to start. It has started. It has started. Yeah, it's good um, too. And uh, but I don't think we're counting that here. I think here we're just counting the Gorilla Comics uh, seven or six issues of the original Empire. Uh, uh, well, the the six issues did not come out under Gorilla Comics. Oh yeah, some of those were DC. Yeah, right. two came out under Gorilla Comics. Yeah, uh, was... boy, Gorilla Comics. What a what a noble experiment. Yes. So there were uh, two under Gorilla, and then the remaining four came out as just a straight up DC comic. They were not even they were not uh, Vertigo. Yeah, it was they a non DC universe book, but it was a it was a DC comic. Yeah. Uh, great art by Barry Kitson. Amazing. Some of the Kitson's best designs too. I love the character designs in Empire. Yeah, like uh, the design of Golgoth, who is the Doctor Doom analog. He's he's clearly supposed to be a Doctor Doom ish kind of guy, 
but has a very distinct, almost cybernetic look to him. Yeah, and and also I think the implication is that he's an Australian Aborigine because his you know, original army that he equips and takes over Australia with, because uh, that's one of the really clever things about it is that he, you know, there's there's a superhero in the world of uh, Empire, but. Uh, Golgoth starts in Australia and works his way uh, w- uh, works his way west. So America is the last thing that he gets to. So yeah. he's at his, the peak of his power before he has to deal with the superhero. Um, so yeah, I really like that uh, implication too because that is a like there's him and Gateway, <laughs> and that's it. I cannot think of any other Australian Aborigines. <laughs> uh the that opening sequence is fantastic because it's this opening sequence and it's got like a bunch of web pages that are kind of reporting on you know oh you know tensions rise in in Australian outback or whatever and then as the the page moves from left to right like you get like bigger and bigger headlines until Golgoth takes control of the internet and shuts it down and then you get like paper newspapers and then you get like you know one is like you know, the last free newspaper in the world. And it's like, uh, it's like, well, we're fucked. <laughs> yeah. Like we are super fucked. Yeah. And then it skips five years into Golgoth's reign. And it's just, you know, a ton of his ministers and his daughter and the people who are, uh, sort of his cabinet constantly, bickering among themselves and and all the conflict is between them. Yeah. Cuz the only superhero as far as we know in Demian is dead as soon as the things kick off. Yeah. Um yeah, it's it's really good. It's really good and there's like a there's a lot of there's a lot of different mysteries and a lot of different points of intrigue. Uh the characters are all really engaging cuz cuz the the classic trouble with a book like that is who do you root for? Like when everybody in your book's a fucking scumbag, which they are, who do you root for? Uh, well, it, but it, it, it sort of becomes a soap opera at that point, you know, like everybody's kind of bad, but they all have their own agenda. Yeah. And everybody's trying to fuck everybody else over. Oh yes. <laughs> and, and some people are just trying to fuck other people as well. Yeah, that happens. Uh, um, and, and the twist at the end of the first arc is is really good and really well done. Uh, uh, to the point where I, I don't want to re- reveal it for anyone who hasn't read it because yeah, because you can go it, read it right now at Thrillbent. So yeah, four bucks. Uh, okay, bad. so where does Empire go? Because I really like it. I mean, I think it's it's on par with say with maybe a sleeper. Do you think it's as good as Sleeper, though? I don't think it's as complex as Sleeper. I, I think Sleeper has definitely has the edge in engaging characters. Like, there's nobody yeah. in Empire that I think is as well done as Miss Misery. That's probably true. Well, how do you think it like ranks up against maybe like a Zot? I think Zot is strangely comparable to Empire. In what way? In that they they're you know, self-contained series about superhero archetype characters uh, that create their own like world. It's, 
I feel like it's kind of close to in in tone. I don't know if it's if it's quite this good, but I feel like it's quite you know in tone. It's kind of close to ecstatics in the way that it plays with those expectations. Sure, I can but, also I, mean, I, think, I can also see some comparisons to Squadron Supreme. Squadron Supreme, I think, is a really good comparison. Like, incidentally, if you like Squadron Supreme, you will like Empire. I'll yeah. put a guarantee on that. Yeah, uh, I, they they explore a lot of the same themes. Um, I would be okay with putting it in the neighborhood of Squadron Supreme. Uh, Squadron Supreme is really good. Yeah, I think that's. I actually think that's a really good place for it. Now, I would put it. <sighs> Do you think it's better or worse than Squadron Supreme? Do you think it goes above or below? Because I would put it above Ghost World, which is currently above Squadron Supreme. Yeah, but I know you like Ghost World a, hell, a lot more than I do. I mean, I would be. I think I would put it above Ghost World. I think I would pick it up and read it before Ghost World. I, I could put it between I Kill Giants and Ghost World. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good place for it. Okay, that's where Empire goes. If you haven't read it, go read it. It's it's excellent. Um, the next one on John's list is Doom Twenty Ninety Nine: The Warren Ellis Run. Uh, sadly, have not read it. I have been trying to put together a run of Doom 2099 for a year. I haven't read it either, so we're going to have to disqualify You remember at San Diego, that was the one back issue I was looking for, was yeah. Doom 2099. Uh, if, we can, if we can get it together, get the, the run together, then we will rank it. But for now, we're going to have to skip it. The last one on John's list is Batman the Man Who Laughs. That's good-ass comics. That is, that is the Ed... Ed Brubaker, Joker story, correct? Yes, it is. Ed Brubaker and Doug Monkey. Which, yeah. uh, I interviewed Ed uh, not too long ago, uh, was originally supposed to be drawn by Steve Dillon. Oh, that would have been an interesting looking comic. Yeah, Dillon, I don't think, has ever drawn Batman. He drew, seems like- he drew a Batman analog in the uh, Supreme Power... Do you remember the Supreme Power solo series? Yeah, yeah, the Nighthawk series. There was a Nighthawk series uh, that Steve Dillon drew. I think that's the closest Steve Dillon has come to drawing Batman. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, Steve Dillon's really good. Uh, but yeah, uh, but you know, you know who draws the shit out of that comic book is Doug Monkey. Doug Monkey, yeah, that is the best thing Doug Monkey's ever drawn, hands down. He's drawn some good stuff. I mean, yeah, he uh, has. Major Bummer is pretty good. Uh, I I don't I don't care for his Justice League uh, run, but like he a lot of it looks nice. Yeah. His Green Lantern stuff looks really good too. But I think he is he is perfect at drawing the Joker. He draws one of the best Jokers I've ever seen. I've seen a lot of them. Yeah, that that I agree. That now, Joker here's a fun is... fact about a uh, man who laughs. I didn't like it the first time I read it. And and why didn't you like it? Uh, because I was that was in the midst of me kind of uh, uh, going back and becoming the Batmanologist that I would become. So I had just read the two stories. Well, I, I had just read the story from Batman number one again, uh, and I had just gone back and reread The Laughing Fish, and it was just the third time I had read a version of that story, uh, and I was like really. I might have even written about it on my old blog, uh, but I I think it came out before then. But I, I was really down on it when it came out. And then the second time I read it, I was like, oh, hey, I was an idiot. This is amazing. <laughs> uh, 
it's it's <coughs> one of the best origin era Batman stories. Because, you know, like, after year one was so successful, like, there's an entire cottage industry at DC Comics right. of year one era Batman stories. Uh, and, like, that and the two Matt Wagner stories are far and away the best things to come out of that. Like, it's the perfect, it's the perfect sequel to year one, I think. Uh, just really, really clever, really well done. Um, the... You know, I, I talked to Brubaker, and he talked about the idea of there being this weird uh, warehouse full of dead bodies that were the the people that were had Joker toxin tested on them. So, like, yeah, you know, there's got to be somebody out there who was frowning <laughs> instead before he got the chemicals right. Uh, and like, he laughed when he was talking about it, and it's like, but it's such a scary scene where Gordon opens up that warehouse and he's like, Oh, there's a bunch of weird dead bodies with their faces all twisted up. Yeah. This isn't good. Yeah. And there's a line from Gordon where he's like, this is my life now. <laughs> it's like, so it's so depressing. Like poor I Jim mean, Gordon on the surface, the man who laughs is a story you have either seen or read before. Yeah. Right. It's about the Joker trying to poison the water supply. That is like supervillainy 101. Like that is the the most basic supervillain plot. And you know, it involves ace chemical and a warehouse full of mutilated corpses and all that kind of stuff. It's it's got a lot of those joker beats that are kind of the cliché joker things. But this that comic is not about the story beats. It's about the execution and the character stuff. And I think that's that's why it's easy to be like, oh, I don't like that comic because I've seen this before. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's easy to have that reaction to it. But you read it and you understand how well the story is told and you can kind of come around on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I am really glad that it got back into print when Dark Knight came out. Because it is, like, if you are a casual fan who who wants to read a really good Joker story and you don't mind reading an origin, like, that is, it's really good. Uh, that That's really my only problem with it, is that, like, and, and it's not even a problem with that story. It's a problem with comics in general, where I, like, we can't just not do origins anymore. Yeah, I'm it's fine, fine with I'm fine with never revisiting an origin again, but. Yeah, and I say that as a dude who could not love Zero Year more. Right. Even to, but there's an argument to be made that Zero Year isn't an origin per se. I mean, it's well, certainly Zero, early Batman. Zero Year is is it is truly the Batman origin the way you've never seen it before. That's true. Uh, uh but yeah, like for it being a uh, a Joker origin story and like the kind of Batman and Joker's first meeting, it it holds up really well. So let's I guess we can compare it to some other DC origin y comics. Like what, uh, be, what are you looking at? You're looking at like JLA Year One? JLA Year One is one. Man uh, of Steel's on here. New Frontier is on here. I think it's better than New Frontier. I I do too. Uh JLA Year One is would put it in pretty good company. 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I don't think it's as good as JLE Year One. Yeah. Because um, I really, really like JLE Year One. Um, but I would say it's above iZombie, below Thor the Mighty Avenger. That is exactly where I was looking. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's easy enough. That is where that goes. John, thank you for that list. Those are our three Every Story Ever lists for this Every Story Ever special. Thank you to our Patreon donors for making this happen, this episode. If you would like to back us on Patreon to ensure that these keep happening, uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash warrocketajax. To read our Every Story Ever list, go to warrocketajax.com and click on the Every Story Ever tab. I try to keep that as updated as I can. The last few that I've added to the list do not have episode numbers attached to them. If you know the episode numbers uh, of the episodes that we talked about those, send those to me so I can get that updated, please. For the rest of our War, our War Rocket Ajax shows, be sure to go to warrocketajax.com. Also, check us out on iTunes. If you go to iTunes and you search for War Rocket Ajax, you'll find the show. If you like the show, leave us a review. And we're going to wrap up here by t- telling you where you can find us on the internet. For me, all you have to do is go to about.me slash Matt D. Wilson, and you'll find links to all my stuff. Chris, where can everybody find your stuff? Everybody can find me uh, at about.me slash Chris Sims. Of course, I am on Twitter at the ISB, and you can find Matt and I both frequently at comicsalliance.com. Thank you once again, uh, especially to our Patreon backers, and uh, we'll see you soon with another episode of War Rocket Ajax.